subtle reminder that nothing we say on today's show should be construed as investment advice. Uh, everyone listening should contact uh, professional investment advice. Um, welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode four. Uh, we're here with uh, my boy Richard Diaz with uh, Acorn Macro Consulting, a boutique research firm covering the global macro with a number of institutional level clients. And our favorite boomer, as always, Keith Dicker with Icecap Asset Management, who's been managing money professionally for over 30 years, running a hedge fund, et cetera. Kind of a big deal. Welcome back to the show, uh, gents. Morning. Morning. I love how I'm a boomer. What, what am I exactly as the boomer? Is it, is it the Gen I mean, you had, a tr- you, you had troubles logging onto the Zoom here today. So, um. <laughs> And you own a house. <laughs> So just, um, just to be clear, so I did, I did the CFA program. Uh, I think I finished the last exam in 97, I think it was. But there, like, there was no email for us back then. There was no internet. Everything came in a big box of books and everything. So, uh, yeah, I guess I am a, a boomer. Really, really showing your age there. I love it. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. The internet, yeah. But you look fantastic. Um, anyways, on with the show. Um, so this week kind of wanted to do a little bit of a overview, um, for my sort of longtime followers, so to speak, uh, update on the Canadian housing market, because I think that's going to tie in well with the rest of the show. Cause we want to jump into, um, you know, what's happening in the, the oil market in particular, obviously it's a huge, uh, resource here in Canada. Um, but what we've seen obviously is a huge, um, huge doubling down, I suppose, on, on housing, right? I mean, it's gotten such a large um, component of our economy. Um, and so we're going to touch on that and how that plays into the oil market and obviously what our government um, is proposing to do there. So, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, covering my, uh, my hometown here, uh, Greater Vancouver, uh, you know, home sales down 5% on a year-over-year basis. The big story again here is inventory dropping 38%, um, just just a massive drop. And we got home prices are now up officially across the board, 15%. But there's all these aberrations that are happening. You know, we've talked about this pandemic-driven flight to the suburbs. You know, house prices in, in suburbs such as Abbotsford are up 35%, Langley 35%, Chilliwack 52%, so just massive uh, house, house price inflation there. Uh, if you go to, you know, our nation's largest, uh, city, you know, Toronto home prices, uh, as of the end of October, now up 25%, um, active listings contracted 55%. So, uh, not a whole lot of relief on the housing front. Um, you know, despite all the narratives around, you know, rate hikes and, uh, inflation, et cetera, um, which kind of brings me to, sort of framing up this week's podcast conversation. Um, You know, everyone's talking about rate hikes. Obviously, we just talked about um, how large a component is real estate is of the economy. Um, Macquarie macro strategy, Macquarie put out a a piece here. Um, uh, Canada's residential investment as a percentage of nominal GDP uh, is now over 10% of, of nominal GDP. Uh, four standard deviations above the long-term average. So uh, kind of goes to show you that, uh, you know, we've doubled down on housing. And uh, I think the government, Rich, um, at the most recent meeting there of the Global Minds, um, proposing um, some harsh reality to the uh, energy sector here in Canada. Do you want to touch on that? Sure, but I just want to say, can I just touch one more thing on the housing? I think the corollary, and if you don't mind, but the corollary on that 10 point, whatever it is, 10.3% of nominal GDP <laughs> is that investment in other types of capex is basically at an all-time low as a percentage of GDP. So I think it's important to remember, it's not only that we're just investing and spending a lot of money on real estate and housing, is that we're not investing on any other part of the economy. And I mean, I, I have some charts so I'm happy to share with our listeners well, um, offline, but it's just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's down in real time. I don't know why you would start a business if you can just go buy a pre-sale and get rich. So I think I that mean, that's, that's exactly what doing. <laughs> what, I mean, the other, intri- yeah, Keith can do it. Uh, I can do anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the other interesting part about that is, you know, this rise in residential investment, it's all from debt. That's where it's coming from. Yeah. And a lot of CapEx comes from equity. 
going into a, a business and a startup. And, and this has been ongoing now for a number of years. There, there's been a, a pretty big uh, decline or trending downward trend in, in private capital wanting to make an investment in, in various industries. And it's not just in Canada, it's helping elsewhere as well. And you know, we go back to the whole central bank you know, sort of environment they've created. The closer and closer we uh, we trended towards zero percent rates, you know, that's when the private sector said, "Hey, this is a bit wacky right now. You know, let's 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 hold back a little bit. You know, let's buy shares. Let's buy our shares back instead, and and whatever." But it, it is a great observation, Rich, you know, to tie that into it. Yeah. So it just it's just it, it's it's also just a function of Canada. I mean, we'll get into this in a little bit later, and but it actually ties into the oil thing. Is that Canada just? I love Canada. So before, you know, and, and I'm really proud to be Canadian, but I think it's important that we're, we acknowledge sort of um, the realities. And I think one of the, and I think that that's, you know, when we talk about the housing market and the issues there, we talk about uh, CapEx and other sectors outside of housing and the issues there. I mean, the only way you can sort of correct for problems in your economy and your life and anything is for acknowledging the things that are going wrong with it. And how you do that is just looking at the raw data. And I think that that's, um, you know, when we think about um, how else, how, how else would you improve a country's productivity? You have to look at things like real research um, and development. And again, you know, um, again, I'm happy to share any of these charts with people, but um, these are widely available. You know, R&D spend on natural science and engineering doubled from 1990 to 2005. And since 2005, um, and it's no coincidence that that sort of is approaching the peak in the last peak in the oil um, and oil and commodities, it's been flat. So just think about that. Uh, spending on research and development for engineering um, and natural sciences has been flat in this country for 15 years. Now I have a question that, for you. How, how much of that do you feel is directly attributed to Canada and just maybe a, um, us maybe losing our way, our business savvy? And how much of that do you think is attributed to sort of the, what appears to be like a global like the financialization of the economy globally, right? Like, um, you know, as Keith talked about, you know, zero interest rate policy, uh, private corporations opting just to do share buybacks, uh, you know, stuff like that, like this sort of financial engineering um, because the cost of capital is essentially zero. Yeah, I think it's I think it's two things. One, I think it's you know we we actually underestimate how negative and and my, this is my view personally. So forgive the editorial, but I, I think we underestimate how important or how bad the WTO was for countries like Canada, parts of the Midwest, and um, in effect, we no longer produce consumer goods. And this is and I'll get to why this is really important when we touch on oil. Um, we don't produce consumer goods. We don't really produce any manufacture. We don't manufacture cars really anymore. We have a negative um, net exports as in, so we import um, more, many more cars than we produce. Um, although there's some big parts manufacturers in Ontario, um, you know, electrical equipment, machinery, et cetera. Um, again, always happy to share the charts that I have on this data, but I think it's, it's, it's related to what Keith said, you know, when, when you push down interest rates well beyond what they should be, e.g. negative real interest rates and you stick them there. People are smart, you know, um, eventually people just say, why get a job? Why invest in productive assets when I can just make the, the cap rate trade, right? The cap rate, meaning as you, as you can explain this better than I can, Steve, but when interest rates go down, you just, you're just, you, your return on your equity is fantastic. I mean, can I just hop in there really quick? I mean, I think like I see it, at least like, I'm just hearing you say this, like, oh, that sounds really familiar. Uh, I just see it like uh, in the housing sector, it's like, everybody, everybody and their dog wants to buy a, a rental property. So everybody's now becoming an investor in real estate. Um, it's kind of just like a self-fulfilling feedback group loop, right? Like the more that the prices go up, the, the more it entrenches this view that, you it know, it can never go down. It can never go down. And so, yeah, it's like, why, why start a business, right? Like, let's just go along a presale condo. And like what, what I talk to mortgage brokers, like, um, you know, some of the biggest things that we're seeing, I'm talking like the best mortgage brokers in all of Canada. So they're doing ton, you know, so much volume. Um, you know, the biggest thing they're seeing is like what, what you would traditionally see in the housing space is, okay, you've got a entry level home, you know, a condo, whatever you typically would sell that use the equity and then upsize to your family home. Well, now what people are doing is they're keeping that existing condo, they're refinancing that and then uh, buying 
uh, you know, their, their family home. So they're opting to keep basically two properties. Um, and so I think that kind of plays into basically what you just said. Just a, a, one thing to add to us, because it, it does tie into our energy conversation that, that's coming up. Um, the financial industry has always been able to react or be proactive very, very quickly. It can turn on a dime. So if there's an opportunity to lend into this market, you know, capital will find its way there very quickly. That will lead into their energy market discussion. The energy market is different. Uh, when policies change and, and demand changes, things like that, uh, it, that global industry, it takes a long time to turn. It's literally this enormous ship. It takes a while to turn. Sometimes it takes years for it to make that turn to respond to changes that are happening. And uh, that's what Canada is. You know, we have to have this bookend economy right now, you know, the financial sector and the energy sector. That's yeah. how we, we move into the energy discussion. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. So I just, I think, so for me, I, I've been, I spent a lot of time looking at this because, um, well, I love studying uh, economies. I love understanding what makes countries tick. And for, I think what's important for our listeners, especially the Canadian listeners is, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, Keith's warned me to not make this political. And it's really important to not talk about climate change either, because that's not what this sort of discussion for me is about. What discussion is for me about is just simply for Canadians, I think, to understand the importance that oil is right now in our way of life, in our inflation, in our current account balance, and et cetera. So effectively, Canada is a natural resource extracting economy. We extract and use our natural resources and our land in order to pay for goods that are manufactured and produced everywhere else. So 50% of our exports are things like our energy, mining, agriculture, um, and basically chemicals, but that's partly a thing. And so just to just be clear, our largest net export is energy products. That's 15% of our exports. And we sell energy, forestry, mining materials, looking at this, to pay for those consumer goods. Our current account balance right now is in line. So it's zero. And that's a function of two things. One, the fact that Canadians no longer travel anywhere. So we're all stuck at home. That's a services component that has basically gone from massively negative to zero. But very importantly is that the energy exports component is 3% of GDP. Just to give you sort of into context, you know, Germany, um, all of the Euro area has, is, is Euro areas exporting nation. Its entire current account balance is roughly three. Um, you know, the, you, you know, so, and then if you X out that energy products, you have a massively negative current account balance. And I think that that's really, really important. We sell energy and a bunch of other stuff in order to pay for everything else. You say, well, Rich, what if we just stop producing and selling energy? Well, the reality is, is we haven't spent basically a dollar on the infrastructure and the assets necessary to A, produce the things that we want to, to consume and buy and B to compete on a global market, which is what we, we do. What we have is natural resources and we exploit those natural resources. So again, the last point I'll flip it to you guys. The key thing there is we get, we change. So Canada's, so the world basically consumes about a hundred, um, hundred million barrels of oil per day. One barrel of oil is 42 gallons it's about 159 liters of oil. Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil in the world. It varies from day to day who's in first. Right now, it's the US with about 11, Russia, 10, Saudi, 9. Then the next four are Canada, China, Brazil, and Iraq. Those four basically fight it out for who's in fourth place. But basically, Canada with 4.4 million barrels of oil produced a day. 97% of those barrels get exported to America, which is why pipelines, by the way, there's loads and loads of pipelines already. So the fact that their argument got one is a joke that is expected exported to the United States, which is our largest trade partner. So we exchange oil. They give us hard currency, us dollars, and we use that to keep our quality of life relatively very, very high. GDP per capita is very high. 
that what that allows Canada to do is by exploiting that oil resource, it creates a shock absorber. How does it create a shock absorber? Our currency is tied inextricably to what's called the terms of trade. So when oil is a pro-cyclical commodity, when the world is improving, oil gets bid up. Our currency follows the price of oil. And so as the world improves, our currency effectively has a built-in shock absorber to increase our purchasing power of all of the goods and services that we purchase from countries like China and the United States, et cetera. And so this idea that Canadians can just extract themselves from this resource is possible, sure. But what for me is lacking in the conversation is a profound and deep understanding as to why it's important, given what Steve, you've talked about, which is the over-dependence on real estate to our GDP and our and as a function of that, our lack of productivity. Boom. That was a masterclass right there. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, you've, you've kind of hit the net, you know, hammer on the head here. I mean, Keith, I'll, I'll flow, throw it over to you in a sec here, but you know, I think if everybody's talking in Canada about, Hey, again, like I bring this back, like, Hey, rates are going up. Housing is going to blow up. Okay. Well then what? right? Like oil is like that, like saving grace. And like, so I don't know, we seem obviously hell bent on, on getting rid of it here in Canada, but uh, I don't know, Keith, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, I, th- I think you always had to be pragmatic about things and uh, you know, what, what Rich described, it, it's very important and critical for us to understand is you know, how vital the energy sector is for Canada. If you're, even if you're not touching Alberta or Newfoundland for that matter, it's, it's extremely important for everyone. So I forgot um, that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and one, one of those uh, Alberta is considered to be very, a very dirty oil and uh, what it's, you know, the byproducts from getting it out, you know, whereas, whereas the Newfoundland oil is not as, as dirty from that perspective. But I think we, first of all, what everyone, what we need to appreciate here, uh, a couple of things, first of all, is that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, So, I mean, so what's really interesting with the energy sector, it's affecting everyone in Canada. It doesn't matter if we're in Atlantic Canada or in Ontario or BC, uh, but all the oil in Canada is being, you know, it's being produced out of Alberta as well as Newfoundland. And what's important to know is that the Alberta oil, uh, the oil sand is considered to, have, to be dirty oil. The byproducts coming out are considered to be more harmful for the environment. Meanwhile, the oil coming out of Newfoundland is considered to be less harmful, you know, for everything else being equal. Now, what we need to know are are two things here. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, the global energy sector, it's incredibly complex. Uh, You can break it down by, you know, you have oil and then you have natural gas. And the problem with natural gas, of course, is transporting it. Uh, To get it from one continent continent to the next, you have to liquefy. It means you're putting on chips and these ships are burning oil. The ships cannot burn anything but oil to move around. You know, they can't run on solar or anything like that. So it, again, it, it's a very complicated system that we have. And then what we need to do next is, is place two other, I guess, layers on top of it. First of all, in terms of oil being produced in the world, the majority of the oil, it, it is coming from what you call national states or nation states. So you're looking at the Middle East, Saudi, and the Russians, and so forth. And then you have the private sector. And as Canadian investors, we, we tend to only focus on the private sector. And specifically, you know, the Canadian listed energy companies and, and so forth. The other layer to, to wrap all this up nice and neat and, and tidy is that there, there's a, an extremely powerful, um, I guess, like environmental industry around the world. And they are being funded by uh, both public sector and private sector players. Some, some would be considered good, some would be considered bad, and they all have an incentive for doing this. But the point is, you know, this group, they have a lot of influence on what politics are being played out and what policies are being implemented. So the policies that we're really talking about today, you know, to cause us to be concerned about being Canadian and what could happen with the energy sector, it's coming from these global policies. 
and it, it's irrelevant whether you you know, agree or disagree with them. We say, hey, some of this data is it's that's really frightening, or this data doesn't reconcile quite right. The point is, the momentum pushing these policies it, it, it's coming straight down, going to go railroad straight through Canada, and it is going to affect our energy sector, and most specifically it's going to have an impact in terms of what's going to happen with the price of oil. And when oil rises, it doesn't affect the middle to upper class as much. It does affect lower income families and individuals. And that's the same all the way around the world. I mean, you remember the, uh, the Arab Spring from a few years ago? And like, that was caused from food shortages primarily. And if we continue to go down this path of trying to create uh, cleaner energy, that's going to have effect on fertilizer prices. They're going into food and food prices are higher. For example, you look at what's happening in the UK now over the last uh, few weeks, it is that exact same scenario playing out. So a- again, as Canadians, we have to appreciate, uh, you know, as investors maybe on the call, you think, hey, the price of oil is going to go uh, up to the moon, it's going to be strong, going to make lots of money here. Um, the supply of oil is going to be dictated at the national level, not by the private sector. And the su- supply of oil should not change very much unless we get a geopolitical event. That, that's what would happen. But then we're switching over then to the private sector, you know, and that's what we're thinking about as Canadians, Canadian investors. How, are, how can they position themselves? Can they get access to funding? And those are the sort of, these are the type of decisions that were coming out of Scotland over the weekend. Uh, did you guys read the Kearney article that came out as well? What, what, you what want to just remind, report? yeah, give, give listeners a little tidbit on that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I mean, so Mark Kearney, of course, you know, he used, he's a good Goldman, Goldman Sachs guy a long time ago. Former and, Bank of uh, Canada governor. Then he went to the Bank of Canada for a while. And then he went to, I think then he went to the BIS or no, he ba- Bank of BIS. England. Yeah, the Bank of England, also the Bank of International Settlements, and you know, now he's jumped over on the UN side. Um, so, you know, you know, I actually met him a few years back, and, um, you know, lovely guy. Um, the point is, though, he's extremely well connected and respected, and again, so he's a part of this policy group that are driving these changes around the world, and uh, one of the I don't know what the correct word to use is. Uh, the, the, the group that he's, is an acronym for it, but he's basically have, he now has all the world's major banks on, on side. So which include JP Morgan, Bank of America, you know, everyone's favorite Canadian bank is, as well. They've all agreed that they are going to make it now more expensive for energy sector production companies to get capital, to borrow, that that's what's going to happen. They're basically starving so, them of capital. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. So, I mean, so we talked earlier about, you know, the Canadian housing market. It's gone up because it's it's gone up, but also debt's gone up at the same time, right? So, you know, one debt is being offset by the, or the assets being reduced by the debt. So the net change, you know, it, it, it's sort of incremental. Uh, with these energy production companies and exploration companies, if they're not able to borrow with debt, from say they're smaller, Exxon is not borrowing from a bank, of course, right? They're going to regular debt markets. But you know, for the junior guys and in, in the mid-tier up, uh, it means they have to borrow equity, not borrow. They have to acquire equity to do this. Equity comes from individual investors, private investors. We'll talk about the institutional space in, in a second. Uh, let's talk about the institutional space first. So the institutional space that will be pension funds and, and so forth, they are being highly driven by ESG investing and they are being discouraged from investing in these sectors. So now all of a sudden you're gonna have less investments on a regular basis going into the energy sector with, with passive funds and, and active funds and, and so forth. So then they have to acquire capital another way. So then they have to go say private equity and that's quite expensive. And, and these investors know because they can see this, you know, this huge wave of policy changes on a global basis supported by all the governments, the major countries, as well as these extremely powerful environmental groups, as well as this, this group that's banning, that's collecting all the banks together. As a private investors, do you want to stand in front of that? That's a, that's a pretty bold stance to take. Rich does, of course. Um, but the point is that there, there's a lot of things stacked against the energy sector right now. And um, 
you know, one of my friends, a guy, Bob McMinn, if you ever come across Bob, uh, but a couple of years ago, he introduced me to the idea of stranded assets. And he said, he, he said, Keith, hey, listen, stranded assets in the energy sector, it, it's going to happen. That's where we're going. So the point is that there's a lot of can you, really can you, good- Can you just touch on that stranded assets? Like what, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so for example, right now, we all have friends in Alberta and, um, and like some of my friends, they've had to leave. They've had to like move to Houston, the big energy companies up there, some of them have simply stopped production on some of the properties or have stopped exploration. So they just leave them on the balance sheet. So it becomes a stranded asset. It's not producing anything. At some point in time, some guy like Rich, you know, he's going he's gonna to walk up and chat with his friend Steve in, in, uh, in Vancouver, who's going to sell all his properties. And then they're going to buy up all these assets that are for sale you know, at bargain prices and then start producing again. But again, th- this is a very long, a long turn to take. Whereas like the financial sector, because again, on the weekend, Kearney says, everyone do that and they're going to do it. Anyway, but that, that's a bit of a long-winded introduction into what we need to appreciate of what's happening in, in the sector. Can, can I just quickly I just summarize jump, that? Uh, Rich? Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. You, and then I'm going to jump over to you, quickly summarize. Basically, Keith is what, essentially what Keith is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but... Basically, uh, Carney and Co., the sort of uh, global masterminds here, um, are going to basically try to starve the energy sector of of capital. Essentially, it's going to be it's going to cost them a lot more to borrow money for ex- exploration, etc. And so, uh, if you're sort of an oil or an oil producer, uh, essentially, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to to actually go out and search for more oil, you're better off just to basically return that capital back to your investors. But thus, uh, in essence, you could ultimately create a, a shortage of, of future oil supply, thus higher prices. I mean, I don't in know the, if that's... From the pri- yes, just to add, in the private sector, remember. Well, that's so where I'd like to step in. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, go, yeah. go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. Sorry, 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 Keith. Yeah, so that would affect, you know, like the, you know, the listed companies or the private companies that are out there, but the likes of the Saudis, um, you know, Russian oil and, you know, Venezuela, Brazil, Mexico, like those guys are still going to be producing and they don't care a hoot about what Kearney and the, Kearney and the lads are, are putting together. You stole and, my thunder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thunder. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> but that's no, you know, go it, for it, it. Is a good, it is a good perspective though and everything, right? We, we really need to score a square the peg with, with what's happening. But what else do you see though, Rich? Well, I think that you, you, so you nailed it exactly right. I think that the reality is, is that when I say that there's 96 million barrels of oil consumed per day this idea that we're going to turn this global energy consumption around i think is false and and the reason it's so important what keith is saying is two two reasons one the marginal producer i in my view and i think keith will share this will shift to what i would call nefarious actors people who don't like us people who are not ranked in the top 10 in democracy indexes or press freedom or women's rights, Russia, Saudi, China, Iraq. And by pulling yourself out of this global market, Canada, which has respect for women and gays and uh, is, you know, ostensibly a pretty decent democracy and has press freedom, you are basically transferring the production and the money and money is power. And it's a G, what this these policies are an inadvertent geopolitical football that you are taking away from what I view is a country that is, at least aspires to be a you know liberal democratic country with socialist values to a country and countries that have demonstrably demonstrated they don't give a shit about a the environment b anybody who gets in front of the totalitarian people who run these places. And I think it's really, really important that we remember that when we turn our back on such an important commodity. And then to address the the private sector thing, the reality is the consumption of oil is not going anywhere. India is a billion people. They're going to consume more cars, not less. China, they're consuming more cars and more energy, not less. We haven't even talked about Africa. They're just 
they've just woke up. We're, you know, from a de- developmental point of view, from a GDP, GDP per capita point of view, they're only about to start getting onto the energy train. And that energy means oil. And so what you're doing, is what, and, and to me, why I'm so bullish actually on the energy sector, and I guess I'm speaking my book here, so forgive me for that. And why, you know, I'm saying, and, and I wrote about a piece, I wrote it in a piece called The Crude Light of Day, is that by only attacking the supply and increasing the cost of capital for these energy companies, you're actually inadvertently making them and perversely, it's a pyrrhic victory. You're making these companies more profitable. If your cost of capital goes up, you're going to be more disciplined in your capex. Um, you're going to, and you have a situation where supply will be squeezed, the cost of capital is going to go up, and but the demand for the product that you use that you sell is going nowhere, and so you have it's a sweet spot. And not to mention that all of these pension funds and 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 you know these large institutions that are captured by the Mark Carneys of the world, you can only sell and divest from those stocks once. And once, so case the depot is a perfect example. They're, by the end of 2022, they're going to divest from another 1.5 billion, I think is the number, in oil and energy assets. Once that's sold, once all these pension funds um, re- reduce their exposure to this, equ- to this equity sector, you have a situation where supply is going to be squeezed, demand's not going anywhere, and these energy, you know, other than be outside of being stranded, I think they're going to be an excellent investment. That's my personal view. Again, this is not investment advice. If you want some, you can pay me for it. But there, you know, there's. I think it's a really, really, really important. Those two things are really key, and and I think that so. And then the other thing, finally, just for, and I have to say this. Sorry, I'm really passionate about the subject. Is the idea that we're not going to trend? No one mentions nuclear power as the offset, right? I mean, that's the crazy thing, and I just think that that's for me. I don't know if you guys have views on that last bit, but I just I just find it outrageous. I mean, I think uh, not to get overly political here, but isn't uh, the new was it is it new energy minister Stephen Gillibo? Is that is he the is that what he's called the energy minister? Anyways, I'm not taking was, this trap. <laughs> anyways, I'm gonna quickly touch on this because just to give you a framework of where I think it's gonna the politics around that in Canada. I mean, this guy was literally arrested, I don't know how many years ago, for scaling uh was it what was he CN scaling? Tower? It was CN, CN Tower. Tower. Scale the CN Tower and put <laughs> you know signage up basically saying, you know, end the oil sector essentially is basically what he was saying. Uh, anyways, so he's right. A, we do. We, we now have a criminal. human being, but he's right. Eventually, human beings need to pull themselves away from this commodity. But there's two things. One, it is extremely, extremely useful, and is effectively an energy, and the consumption of energy has emancipated the world for. That is what makes us not like not not be 1800s. It's the fact that we have it is a useful chunk of energy. And number two. No one has presented a viable alternative and wind and solar are not going to do it. P.S. They're manufactured in China and they use coal power plants to power the manufacturing facilities. Uh, Keith, what do you say? What do you do if you're an Albertan? You're like sitting there, you know, Rick from well, Red I mean, You made a good, yeah. I mean, again, like we always, I try to be a bit dispassionate about you're talking about markets, say, like, just be objective. It is what it is. But you just made a good point, Steve, about the, uh, the new energy minister. I think it's incredibly important to know that this guy is, you know, he's more or less anti the sector. So that's, that's good to know. As long as you know where the other guy, where the guy is coming from, then, you, okay, there's no surprises with it. But the, uh, the federal government, they, they've been very anti Alberta. They may say they're not, but their actions are. I mean, they are against uh, expanding, improving, or making better pipelines for Alberta to get the oil out. They are also against the the tankers as well, going through British Columbia. They've been very slow with, with that. Um, so no matter which way you you push all that together, you know, it, it it's not a it's not a great short to medium term outlook for our friends in Alberta. And, and again, I have, I have lots of friends out that way. So you just you just feel for them. However, let's imagine a world, for example, where again that this global group they are highly successful in, in changing how energy is is manufactured and produced. 
you mentioned the number earlier, Rich. I think though, if you add some spin, some uh, multiples to it, the energy sector will make up about twenty to twenty-five percent of the Canadian economy. Yeah, I was just doing it bare bones, but you're one hundred percent right. Thank you. If, if Can you, you say that again, you, so the so the Canadian energy sector contributes about twenty to twenty-five percent to the Canadian economy. So Canadian GDP, about a quarter of it, is coming from out of Alberta and Newfoundland to some extent. But not only is it a huge contributor to the economy, it's a vital contributor you know, to the economy. As you mentioned earlier, it, it, you know, in terms of a, a current account, it's bringing US dollars into the country, whereas everything else, you know, we, we're, we're, we're importing it in. Oh, and just, uh, just for context there, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rich, I think you probably know this better than anyone, but the, the real estate, the fire sector in Canada, real estate uh, finance and insurance, I think is about 24, 25% of GDP. Yeah, well, so, real estate alone is like 15, is like 13, but it's tough. You have to kind of ignore the COVID blip, but basically it's like 10 or 15%. So yeah, right. I would so the energy sector is essentially the same size or slightly larger, basically. Oh, yeah. For yeah. context. Yeah. Anyways, so Keith, what would continue. happen? Yeah. So, I mean, so if, if that energy, if that sector is stripped out, and then you have all the, the nation states who are not going to change their, their habits, not one bit. The ad- additional, like every additional incremental piece of oil, sort of energy coming into the country, it has to come from those players. The cost has gone up. It's higher. It has a bigger effect on lower income families and households you know, to consume. So it, it's a pretty big deal we, we have coming up here. And uh, it, again, it takes a long time to play out, like an incredibly long time to play out. I know uh, someone mentioned nuclear. I know it was, it was Steve or, or Rich, Rich earlier. You're rich, yeah. But it's, you know, a, a, again, like energy cannot be manufactured out of a tree. It has to come from so many places. And nuclear, you know, if, if I'm, you know, rearranging the, the chairs and the deck, it, it's certainly one of the main opportunities that Canada would have you know, to go down that road. And, um, but, you know, it's only, uh, you know, one of, one of the guys, my network I was chatting with earlier, he said, Keith, the number of people who, who die from building, uh, hydroelectricity dams, it dwarfs the number of people who've ever been killed from a nuclear power plant. Right. I, I mean, nu- Keith, oh, sorry, I was going to say a bad it, name all, all the time, yeah, right. It, it's it, a tough one. Well, I was just going to say, Keith, that, you know, if the French can do it, what everyone else should be able to just to give some context france produces 70 76 percent of its or 75 depending on the year whatever uh percent of its electricity production is nuclear energy and if and it's one of the richest uh, countries in the world per capita and i'm just saying canada has lots of space we have lots of uranium we have loads of engineering students and it's just a blind spot that i think that people in, in general just don't um but Keith, back to your point about um, about the the the, the fa- like families. I think what's really also important, and I skipped it in my spiel earlier, is that Canada year on year is one of the best performing Canadian dollar, excuse me, is one of the best performing um, currencies year on year. And it's I think it's up about seven point eight to eight percent, whatever, versus the U.S. dollar. This is at a time when inflation, and I, I promised we wouldn't talk about inflation this time this week, but is at an 18 year high. And so just to give you an idea, if we did, I just imagine what we what would have happened if we did not have the shock absorber from oil offsetting the increases in prices in all other in the commodities we don't have and the consumer goods that we import. That's my question for you guys. I mean, yeah, I mean, so just to like, let's use Turkey as an example. Right. So Turkey, you know, it, it's considered to be a developing country or emerging market country. And you say, geez, Keith, you can't compare Canada to, to Turkey. However, what we're doing here with this exercise is comparing one country who is exporting energy and another country that is importing all of their energy. So with Canada, we're, we're selling oil, we get US dollars coming in, and that's, that's awesome. It's awesome for the economy, awesome for the banking sector, awesome for funding costs, awesome for credit spreads. There's zero bad things associated with that. Turkey, on the other hand, because they have to import all of their energy costs, because it, no, it, and those costs are going through the roof, and they do not export anything to get US dollars, US dollars and foreign currency is just 
fleeing the system. And it's fleeing the system so bad that the central bank is actually borrowing US dollar deposits from the commercial banks. So you, you, you see how oh. it's, so for, so for listeners, it would be the same as if the Bank of Canada said, yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have 500 billion US dollars here to help protect us from anything bad that went on in the world. And then uh, Stephen Rich, they pipe up and say, uh, yes, but uh, Tiff, of, of that 500 billion, actually 490 of it actually came from uh, RBC, BMO, and, and, and the other guys. You, you just took it from their account. So, you know, it, it, again, being energy independent and inefficient and being in control of your own domain, it, it's incredibly important. And then with Turkey, of course, you know, inflation is double digits. You know, they're struggling over there. The economy is one crisis away from you know, having a run on their banking system and, and so forth. But uh, it, it is incredible. Look, we, we, have, a, we have a great country here. Uh, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of really great opportunities for individuals and households and companies. But it's the energy sector, it's getting a bad rap and it, it really shouldn't. Do you have a directional call on that, Keith? I mean, I don't oil, know if you can... crude oil yeah. or the equity side? I think the equity side is going to be, they have the opportunity to struggle. Uh, for crude, we have we have an opportunity here at Obase for it to have a real super spike. And uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a super spike, but you think equities out underperform, <clears throat> basically. No, I mean crude itself, so crude oil. So, um, you know, I think great crude around 81 bucks here for, for, for the WT, for West Texas. Again, like back in, I think it was 07, 08, 09, I don't remember the, the year when it's spiked up to 147, 148. Do you, do you guys remember that from your yep. studies? Because I'm a boomer, right? I was living then. <laughs> I that was my, I was my first job out of uni was 2000, June 2008. Yeah. So I so watched what, it. And what I love about that, so we were, uh, I was offshore then. And uh, so I was offshore for a number of years. And uh, when oil spiked up that high, you know, we said, hey, this, like, everybody wants to buy oil. So, so kind of like today, we have that market, right? <clears throat> Everyone wants to get on oil and this thing's going straight up vertical. We said, geez, like it, you know, eventually everything runs out of, you know, energy, excuse the pun here. But uh, we had some pretty good models in place, especially with, with sentiment and momentum with it. We said, hey, you know, this is going to, this is going to die out here any second. So whenever you get a market moving an extremely aggressive movement in one direction or the other, like get ready to slowly, you know, put on that opposite play coming up. And uh, so back then, the op- man, we were running long only equity as part of the one of the portfolios. And uh, we, I, I remember uh, we, we did our analysis and we said, okay, okay, what has the biggest negative correlation to oil prices? And the answer was airlines. It's like American Airlines, you know, th- those guys. So uh, we, we had the analyst that covered that sector, we said, hey, like, what do you think of these airline stocks? And he said, Keith, these are horrible. You know, he had like 25 reasons why you should never buy them. And uh, yet we did. We just spread the money across them. And then about three weeks later, oil just plummeted. Like it just dropped from the earth. And on an equity base, like these guys, these airline stocks went through the roof. So you're renting the airline stocks. You weren't, you weren't buying them for an investment. So with today's market, um, you know, I, I actually love to see oil have this super spike higher. And all of a sudden it becomes the new cryptocurrency. Everyone's in on it. Yeah, but you knew. And then you just line up, right? You, you, you short this thing. So um, I know, think there's a, di- there's a bit of a difference, though, between 2008 and Keith, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I th- um, but I think one of the big differences, I think you touched on it earlier, actually, which was the fact that a lot of these companies for a long time and now have been starved, basically, for capital. And if you look at the CapEx spend on the, and the aggregate, I only look at sort of aggregate numbers and aggregate figures for countries and sectors. So forgive me if I got this wrong at an individual firm level. But CapEx is, is way, way down. And um, basically over the last three or four years. So unlike, you know, in 2008, where you had the oil boom, but you have had a fall, um, kind of a coincidental and subsequent CapEx explosion chasing that extra, that, that you know, $100, $125 oil. Now it's a, it's a much, much different scenario. And you have, you have uh, CapEx in that oil sector has been, is I think, you know, five, six, seven, eight year low. 
Um, and, and, you know, things like you look at the Baker Hughes rotary rig count, you know, normally they go, it goes lot. So that's basically the, the amount of wells globally onshore, offshore in the U S wherever, um, the, you know, the, in, um, Persimian basin, anyways, North Dakota and, and West Texas. And you can see it's, these guys are much, much more disciplined, um, capital allocators than they were in 2008, which is, I think it's, 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 it's different this time. Forgive me for saying that, but I think, um, well, if, if you get a, like a, a long trending market higher, then yeah, that, that, that's true. If we get this sudden surge, which is what we had back then, fundamentals don't matter at that point. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It really right. doesn't matter. Yeah. Can we, can so we add we, something? We I mean, yeah. uh, just to sort of get towards wrapping it up here, but uh, has, historically, I mean, hasn't a, a spike in, in oil prices <laughs> typically led to a recession? I mean, isn't that rich? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, so on my reasons, to, I have a list on my whiteboard and and reason, and it's, right now I'm quite still quite bullish. And on, on my list of reasons to turn bearish, it's energy squeeze. And I think you're, you're, it's tough to say what the cause of the recession is. It's never one thing. Is it mm-hmm. real interest rates rising? Is it, you know, like, you know, Iran, Iranian revolution? Is it this or is that? Who knows? But you, I think there'd be a lot of my former boss, who's a really smart guy and someone I respect a lot. He would argue that that's one of the big, big contributors. Um, I don't know what Keith's going to tell us what he thinks in a second. I think it's it's definitely a factor. If you, like energy is the most important commodity in the world and you can't live without it. And if it squeezes out the purchasing power of all the other goods and services, I think it definitely contributes yeah, like, to slow it's, down. It's essentially like a tax. Yeah. It's like yeah. a tax, tax on the sort of lower middle class, basically. Yeah. In, in an environment like, where inflation is already pretty high. So, sorry, Keith, go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean, again, like the last point, like from a market perspective, uh, markets and economies can adapt very easily to any long-term trend in any direction. It, it is the sudden spikes higher, and it doesn't matter what caused it. You know, you get a spike higher or lower in anything that's going to affect the economy, especially something as important as energy prices. Uh, it's absolutely going to affect the economy. And, you know, as we talked about before, the, the global economy is just, it, it doesn't look like it should because of all the, you know, the supply chain disruptions, you know, you got, you know, economies are shut down and they're back on again and you can do this or that and the cost of funding is cheap for some and not for others. Uh, like in any sort, any sudden spike in energy, it's it's going to play out somewhere here in the market. And, you know, so the final thing we need, we all need to recognize that there's just still way too much complacency right now across all markets. And uh, people say, hey, you know, what will, you know, what will cause the complacency to disappear? And the, my answer is it, it doesn't matter what causes this. The fact is something will cause it, you know, maybe, maybe it's oil, maybe it is. So summarize, God bless Canadian oil. <laughs> um, let's jump into the mailbags. We've actually got a question here um, from Over Easy. Looks like a, he's got a picture of an egg here on Twitter. Um, he's asking, uh, how integrated are Canada's energy markets with the rest of the world? More importantly, he wants to know, should we expect our natural gas prices, home heating, uh, to explode higher as it has in the UK slash Europe. Can I, can I take this one? So at the risk of, uh, so I'm going on a limb here. The natural gas thing is, I think, a hyper-localized market. And Keith will correct me if I'm wrong, or the people in the comments section surely will. So when you look at the, you know, the 5x increase in the um, natural gas prices in London and, and Netherlands and parts of Europe, et cetera, um, it's a function of two things, I believe. One is that they don't have very many terminals. Number one, number two, they get all their natural gas from Russia and Russia's put the squeeze on. Uh, I mentioned this before, why it's important the nefarious actors don't control all the oil industry. But, and so that, and that so the natural gas is quite a hyper localized thing. Whereas for us, it's something called the Henry hub. And if you, it's basically out of that, that sort of index drives Canadian natural gas prices. And that's in the U S and you'll see it's actually, it hasn't risen anywhere near as much. And then as far as the other question, which was where is our, you know, is our oil industry integrated? 97% of our oil goes to America, um, 96, 97, whatever it is out of the 4.4 million barrels per day. So we're extremely, extremely integrated to the U S market and not so much integrated into the other parts of the world. However, 
US now. So, but that doesn't include things like refining and then all of the products that come from petroleum product, uh, petroleum. So le- like uh, contact lenses, your computer, the microphone, um, you know, you, you know, van- artificial vanilla extract is a petroleum pro- product. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and so the, when it comes to those kind of second order, second derivative things, it, it's, I'm sure it's much more integrated. I don't know if Keith has a, so no, he's I, not as, uh, I wish impressed. I could just say all that again. That was really good. <laughs> I got another question here from Mayor. Uh, Mayor. Uh, anyways, he's asking, uh, with the majority of Canadian mortgages, five-year fixed or less, uh, unlike the U.S., which will allow you to lock in that rate for 30 years, doesn't that make Canada extremely sensitive to rate hikes or increases? Uh, essentially, he's saying is it's not like having teaser rates like they did in the U.S. in 2005. Uh, I mean, my my personal opinion is, and and Keith, maybe you can touch on this after. But my personal opinion is, I think that that's always been the biggest risk in Canada is that you do have a five year five year reset, right? Um, and even if even if even if you have today a situation where, okay, you just locked in a five year mortgage at one and a half percent. I mean, even if that goes to to three percent in five years. I mean, that's basically a doubling, uh, in, in your mortgage rate. Uh, and when you have a highly levered housing market, highly levered private sector, uh, I think that, yes, that's not necessarily going to result in a wave of defaults, but I think what happens is when your mortgage rate basically doubles on your renewal, I think that that's, it becomes a drag on consumer spending, right? I mean, consumer spending in Canada is what 65% of GDP, um, so I think people have to sort of, you know, quantify that, but Keith, I don't know if you have any sort of closing thoughts on that. No, I, I agree with exactly what you said. So, you know, most mortgages are five-year terms, I think here in Canada, a lot of them are fixed rate. So five years from now, people are going to have a shock with their mortgage payment and it takes away from, uh, your discretionary spending opportunities elsewhere. Just a question. Is that still your personal view? In, in five years, like, do you, do you, do you have a, do you envision a world where rates are meaningfully higher? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the low end, so overnight rates, um, I, I don't think they're going to go up at all. As, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they might go up one or two points, but by that I mean like maybe half a percent and then they'll have to stop. It's the long end of the curve, what everyone has to worry about. In, in the mortgage world. I don't think so, so we'll get to five years. I think within five years, I think the financial system will, will look shockingly different than it does today. So, and, so uh, you're telling everyone to go variable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. Rich, Rich has a, uh, a home over in, is it Chelsea? Where's your house? No, I wish hey, Chelsea. Rich, I wish. North, North Rich. London, mate. It's North London. <laughs> Rich it's London, R- London deals with the same problem, right? And I think that's what, what with Boris there, uh, he's trying to create like a new a new market for for longer duration mortgages. Listen, if we've learned nothing from the last few years, is that house prices never ever ever go down, <laughs> and you should just let borrow as much money as you possibly can. <laughs> no, I'm obviously kidding. I mean, I, I can't speak to the thing, the new thing with Boris. I just know I'm very conservative. So I just, I want certainty. So variables are not for me, but I don't know. I can't speak to that. I'm sorry. You got me. That's a wrap. We'll end it there. We'll, we'll leave people hanging with uncertainty. Uh, as always, we'll be back for next week's uh, episode five. We're rolling on your episode five of the Looney Hour. As always, uh, hit the uh, thumbs up, subscribe. If you can write us some reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, we will greatly appreciate it. Push us up in the algorithms. Uh, let's get uh, let's get some more educational content, uh, different voices out in the Canadian sort of financial landscape here. Appreciate the and support. Steve, and Steve, and Steve, if people were interested in some of those charts that I've got, I've, I've got a lot of them. So um, slide, reach out to me. Slide, slide into Rich's DMs. And uh, let's make it happen. We'll see you guys next week.